Good morning, everybody. Uh, we created a survey for you to uh, give input on the questions that you have about your own personal is God. And last week, uh, Brad put on the screen uh, a phone number. This is not a spam number. This is a personal number that goes right to uh, us here at Heartland. And love to just echo what he said. Um, we, we want for you to text in and participate in the questions. And we want to know what is the soul level question that maybe you have about God? Is God dot, dot, dot. And it's actually a bit of a, I would call it providence. Providence is like God's ability to see before we do. That the question that I'm scheduled to talk about today is the number one question that came in last week. Brad was like, at the end of October, we're going to dedicate a whole message to the number one question. Well, guess what? Today, we're dedicating a, a whole entire message to the number one question, which means I'd love for you, there's more questions out there. You got a chance to maybe upvote your favorite question or the thing that maybe you've, you've really wrestled with about God. And um, my hope and desire is that on the last Sunday of the month, we'll have an opportunity to address as many of those questions as possible in a way that really uh, serves us as a church well. Okay, so um, that's that. Now it's gone. Okay, uh, a few years ago, Many of us shifted from in-person work to what's called WFH, work from home. You booed working from home? <laughs> You're like, I don't know, I thought it was something different. No, uh, work from home. Virtual meetings became work. Zoom calls became the, the substance of our lives. And if you were a worker trying to honor a boss or a supervisor, you entered into this hyperactive mode of what I call conspicuous productivity. You tried really, really hard to prove that you should still get a paycheck even though you weren't in the office because you were doing stuff. And I don't want to out every single one of our little secret, but we had Zoom shirts that nice button-down shirt, that matched your sweatpants really nicely because you cared a lot about what was going on up here, but you're like kind of in the casual nature of your home, right? This is a whole entire industry of it, in and of itself was the Zoom, the Zoom industry. This was great for workers. They reported that um, they never loved their job more, but CEOs and supervisors reported that this was not working for them. I know this is not a surprise. I'm just kind of describing to you the world that we all lived in. Uh, they, the supervisors, CEOs, bosses, company owners, they all asked this question. They wondered aloud. They said this, we created this company. We know that. But we don't know if anybody's actually running the company. This was the fundamental tension of the work from home days. We've created this company, but is anyone running it? This is the same question that I think many of us have about God. God created the world, sure. But is he still running it? Or said this way, as DJ teed us up, is God working? Now, the question of is there a God is often answered very simply by saying yes, because there's something rather than nothing. But creation, just the simple act of having a creation, doesn't tell you what type of God created the world, just that a divine being acted. This has given rise over the centuries to this idea of deism. There's many names that this goes by. Deism is probably the, the most common. My name for it, to help you understand what deism is, is I would just call this the Zoom God theory. It goes like this, that God created the world, but his WFH situation, his work from heaven situation, has him on mute and his screen is off. 
This is what a lot of us think about when we think about God. That, yeah, God might be a concept in the meeting, but I can't see him and I can't hear from him. And it'd be really nice to be able to see him and to hear from him from time to time. That way we all know that we're not alone in this meeting or in this world or in our lives, but that he's actually present and attentive. One thing for God to exist, another thing for God to engage. Amid all the struggles that we have in this life, all the conflicts, all the declarations of war, all the natural disasters, the question we have is, is God aware? Is God there? Is he working? Okay, I don't want to give you PTSD, so we're going to take this down. In the Old Testament, there's a book. And here's what I want to do just for the next 30 minutes. I want to actually just tell you a story. There's, there's an entire book of the Old Testament dedicated to this question of, is God working? Yes, I said an entire book. I'm going to take for the next 30 minutes the chance to tell you the story of an entire book of the Old Testament. It's 10 chapters. I successfully did this the first service. But I want to tell you the entire story because it's so good. And it helps us understand this question. It's what the Bible, only the Bible could do this for us, is to help us understand how God is working. So with that, I want to introduce you to what HBO should have picked up a long time ago as one of its premier series to make into a drama, the story of Esther. Now, I got to give you a little bit of a caveat. I will keep my language clean and try and like sanitize some stuff. We got little kids here, um, but this is an R-rated story, and it has tons of um, sex, power, drinking, and murder, so kind of like what you're about to go home and just watch on a movie yourself. And this story is tucked into the pages of Israel's history when the people were under the control of a foreign king, King Xerxes. The story, it would go by, if HBO did it, it would look like this. It would just go by the title character, Esther. I asked AI if HBO created a TV series based on Esther, what would the title screen look like? And this is what happened. I've told you before that I don't use AI to make my messages, but I did make, use AI to make this. How, what do you think? It's kind of kind of good, yeah. Uh, HBO, if you want to talk about the rights to this series, I'm all ears, all right? So uh, we, can, we can have that conversation. Let me tell you the story. It begins, kind of the scene starts with 180 days of a feast. It's the third year of the king's reign, King Xerxes. Yes, that Xerxes that you remember from all the way back when, when you were in social studies class in sixth grade, studying the ancient, the ancient world leaders. Xerxes is a real person in a real place with a real empire. And he, in his third year, had a jubilee festival. He was so obsessed with himself and so obsessed with his own wealth that he flaunted in front of his own kingdom. And to make it as, as great as possible, the last week of this six-month festival, Xerxes decided to throw a, a banquet in the palace and the gates were never closed and anyone could come in no matter if they were the lowest status in the kingdom or the highest. And Xerxes had one command and here was his command. You ready? Keep the wine flowing. Sounds like a great party, if you ask me. And so he's got all of his Bordeaux's and his Cab Sav's and his Zinfandel's. I can never say that one. And they're all being consumed, and it's a great party. And the last day of the party, the king is absolutely toast. And he says something that's rather inappropriate today, but was not inappropriate back then. He says, fetch me my wife. I want everyone to see how beautiful she is. Well, Queen Vashti was hosting her own banquet for the women of the kingdom. And when she heard that King Xerxes had summoned for her to show her off like a trophy, she 
said, no, I will not come. And today, we would honor Queen Vashti and we would cancel King Xerxes. But back then, they honored King Xerxes and they canceled Queen Vashti. She was expelled from the empire, stripped of her title of being queen, sent out to live out her days in obscurity because she had disobeyed the order of the almighty, all-powerful king, Xerxes. When the king sobered up, which took a couple days, he was alone in his palace and he realized, what have I done? I've taken the woman that I love and I've banished her from my kingdom and now I'm a bachelor. And his assistants, seizing on the opportunity, said, well, king, there's something we can do about that. We can help you since you are the world's most eligible bachelor. Why don't we have a contest in which we gather very beautiful women from around the country, bring them to you, and you could go on dates with all of these women to see if you can find true love. I kid you not, this is in the Bible. It's in Esther. You should look that up. That is not a script from ABC. The king loves this idea. He says, bring me the women. And so women from all across the country start to be brought to him, almost in a Cinderella-like fashion. We don't believe that they were coerced. We believe that this was desired. They were going to be made royalty. Now, this is where the Bible actually pauses and gives us a a little bit of, of an introduction to two new characters. The Bible pauses and the author says, now what you need to know is that outside of uh, living in the the kingdom of these days was an older Jewish man by the name of Mordecai. Mordecai had been taken captive from Jerusalem by King Nebuchadnezzar when the Babylonians uh, sacked uh, the, the Judean empire in the lower part of Israel. And they were taken as prisoners out of Israel, out of Judea. And the Jews were the people taken from Judea and were put in captivity under the Babylonian empire. When the Babylonians gave way to the Persians and the Medes, King Xerxes was now in power. And, and the one person who had, uh, many people, but one of these people who had uh, endured all of this history was this guy named Mordecai. Along the journey from Jerusalem to Susa, where the King Xerxes' palace was, along the journey, Xerxes' aunt and uncle died. And they left behind this precious, sweet little baby girl named Esther. Mordecai loved his cousin and he became like a father to her. He he adopted her as if she was his own daughter. And when the king asked for all the beautiful women in the palace to come and see if they could become the queen, Esther was requested to go. Mordecai said, this is something that I think you're going to have to do, but, but Esther, please promise me one thing. When you go into the king's palace, please do everything that they ask, but do not do one thing. Do not tell anyone that you are a Jew because it will go badly for you in that day when they discover the people that you come from. And so Esther goes and she's taken care of very well in this palace. She uh, is, is protected and everyone loves her and the, the producers of the show are infatuated with her. 
And every day, Mordecai would pace outside of the palace, being so curious about the welfare of his daughter, his cousin. He, he wanted to know if she was doing okay. So he would pace back and forth across the palace entrance, and, and he would just be waiting to see who's coming out of the palace to ask them, how is it going with Esther? Have you seen Esther? Is she doing okay? Does she need anything? Just like a concerned parent who drops their kid off at college for the first time doesn't book it straight home, you kind of hang in the city that your kid's going to school in case they need you, right? Just in case you, you go to Home Depot and walk around for a couple, okay, you go to Target for a couple minutes and you walk around just in case they call and they forgot something. Mordecai is outside day after day after day. And because he's outside the palace, he, he overhears a lot of things. And one of the things that he overhears is two disgruntled guards who work for the king, are so angry at King Xerxes that they decide the best thing for us to do is to kill the king. And so they hatch a plan, an earshot of Mordecai. Mordecai uh, understands what's at stake here, and he, he realizes this is something that Esther can use to her advantage. And so he summons word from Esther, and he tells her all about the plot and says the king needs to investigate this. Well, Esther passes along to the palace assistants. The palace assistants pass along to the king, and the king looks into it. And lo and behold, they uncover an assassination attempt, and those two guards are put to death. They're hung. This is why it's rated R. There's these giant pillars that they're erected with very pointy tips, 75 feet in the air, and they are impaled. HBO, if you want to talk about the series, we can have a discussion, I'm telling you. They're impaled for betraying the king. Are you getting the picture that Xerxes is not messing around? Well, over the next couple of months, 10 months to be precise, Esther is just waiting for her shot. And it finally comes. She meets the king. They fall madly in love. He puts a crown on her head and she becomes queen, Esther. A holiday is declared in her honor. As the king continued to govern over the years, at his 10th year of reigning, a man named Haman caught his eye and was appointed to become his right-hand man. Haman was arrogant and self-important. He insisted that because he was now the right-hand man to the king, that he himself should be treated like the king. And he insisted that everyone else in the kingdom bow down to him, that he would be so revered in the palace that he would be treated like the king, that when he walked by, everybody would genuflect. They'd bow down to, the, to, to Naaman, even though he wasn't the king. They, 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 he, would be, he would be respected. And everyone in the kingdom had no problem honoring Haman, except for this Jewish man standing outside the palace doors named Mordecai. Mordecai would never bow. And though all the officials at the entrance who knew Mordecai by now asked him, why don't you ever bow when, when Haman comes? You know, that's, that's King Xerxes' second in command. Why don't you ever show him respect? Mordecai would never answer them or give them reason. He just refused to bow. And it's, this bothered self-obsessed Haman. It bothered him so much that Haman decided the best thing I can do is plot my revenge. And so he wasn't just angry at Mordecai. He found out that Mordecai was of this group of people living in the kingdom called the Jews. And he hatched a plan. He would purify the kingdom from the Jews. So he pitched his idea the next day to King Xerxes. He even said, King I have so much silver in my own coffers. I will pay personally to all of my silver to you so that you become rich and our kingdom is removed of these people who are different from us. 
The king simply shrugged indifferently himself. He said, well, whatever you want to do, Haman, it's your decision. Just keep your money. It'll be fine. So to the shock and horror of the whole entire kingdom, Haman has edicts drawn up. They're distributed throughout the entire empire in everyone's natural language that on the 13th day of the 12th month, all of the Jews would be annihilated and their goods would be plundered. And then Haman and the king, this is one of the strangest details, but Haman and the king sat down and drank until they got drunk. They celebrated their cruelty. Well, as you would expect, all of the Jewish people in the kingdom, when they found out about this edict, they tore their clothes, they started to weep and to wail, and Mordecai was no different. He, he went all throughout the city gates, mourning the future for his fellow citizens. It was so embarrassing to Esther when she heard about Mordecai. She said, well, if he's torn his clothes and he's in disrepair, I'll just send him some new clothes. So she sent him some really nice Gucci and some, I don't know, maybe it was not really that nice. It was just Viore. He sent sent him all his clothes and, and he refused the queen's clothes. When the assistant came back to tell Esther that he's not taking any of your aid, she, she said to the assistant, find out why. So the assistant went down and Mordecai provided to her, to, to the assistant, a, a copy of the edict with the king's signature on it that all of the Jews on the 13th day of the 12th month shall be extinguished. Mordecai sent back word to Esther saying, you need to go beg to the king for mercy. And this bothered Esther because for some reason she hadn't seen the king in about 30 days. And anyone who visited him without being invited was put to death. When she sent word to Mordecai about this predicament, this is what Mordecai replied to her with. He said, don't think that because you are in the king's house that you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's house or father's family will perish. And then he says this, who knows that but for such a time as this, you have come into a royal position. Esther thinks about this for a moment. She agrees, but she first asks Mordecai, would you fast for me on, your, on, on my behalf for three days? This is what the Israelites would have done for many crisis moments in their lives. At the end of the appointed time, she would go to Xerxes with a request. It's this moment where Esther says her famous line from her story. She says this, if I perish... I perish. Well, when the time came, Esther put on her queen's robes. She stood in the midst of the king's court, heart probably pounding, hoping that he will receive her. And to her relief, the king summoned her to himself and says, what is it, my darling? I haven't seen you in so long. What do you want? What can I give to you? You can have half of my kingdom. And Esther, knowing that the king had certain weaknesses, said to him, well, before I tell you what I want, why don't we have a happy hour with Haman? And the king said, great, I'll invite him. And Haman came at once and Esther, working her magic, got them both totally smashed. In the middle of it, the king goes, Esther, my beloved queen, I'll give you anything that you want, even up to half of my empire. What can I give to you? And Esther says to the king, well, the time is not right just yet for me to make my request. But I'll tell you what, why don't we do this again tomorrow? We're having such a great time. Why don't we just do this again tomorrow? 
And the king and Haman looked at each other and said, absolutely we will. And here's how the writer of Esther tells us that this went for Haman. Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits, which is Bible language. Well, you know what that's Bible language for. When he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that Mordecai neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. And this begins the central series of drama in the story that unfolds something like that of the movie The Godfather. That evening, Mordecai, uh, Haman goes back to his family and friends and he talks about how successful he was, how of all the people in the entire kingdom, only he was allowed to dine with the king and the queen that day, how, how he's finally made it and everyone in the kingdom respects him except for this one guy, this terrible, wicked guy named Mordecai. And Haman's family and friend, they, they spoke up and they said, well, Haman, you're so powerful. Why do you tolerate this? Here's what you should do. Tomorrow morning, go get a pole set up and have Mordecai impaled. And then you'll be able to go to the feast happy. That's literally what the Bible says, those words. Haman thinks it's a great idea. So in the middle of the night, he issues the order to have a giant pole, a giant 75-foot spike placed in his yard. Well, that same evening, in another part of the kingdom, the king is having trouble sleeping. So he does what all of us do when we're having trouble sleeping. He asks his assistants to bring to him the record of his reign and rule. All of his major accomplishments are to be read to him. This is supposed to like help him go to sleep and um, it, it, did, it did not work because at some point the assistant starts reading and gets to the point where this Jewish man named Mordecai overhears this assassination attempt by two guards to overthrow the king and how Mordecai sent word and the king found out about this plan and saved the king's life. And in the middle of his sleepless night, angsty about everything, the king stops the reader and says, well, what happened next? What did I do to say thank you to this Mordecai. I had completely forgotten all about this. And the reader looks up from his page and he says, well, uh, sir, this is a little bit awkward. You haven't done anything for Mordecai. The king says, how, oh, that is outrageous. This is an atrocity. This must be remedied. I will have someone come in and help me honor Mordecai, if I could just figure out how to do it. Well, just then the door to the palace opened up as it normally would as people come and go to do their work for the king. And as footsteps entered into the palace, the king from his inner chamber looked at his assistant and said, whoever's walking in right now, bring them to me. I wanna have them help me honor Mordecai. Well, guess who was walking into the palace at just that moment? It was Haman. Haman, the guy who has shown up to put Mordecai on a spike. He's brought into the king's inner chamber by the assistant saying, the king wants to honor somebody and he needs your help. Will you come help him? And he comes right in and, and Mordecai, or Haman says to the king, he says, king, I've got some business I want to attend to first. And the king says, I'm the king, so my thing first. You know that guy, uh, that, that, that there's someone in this, this kingdom who I want to honor. How would you honor this person if you were having to honor them? And Haman, being so full of himself, thought that the king was talking about honoring Haman. So Haman dreamt up how he wanted to be honored. 
He said, well, I would go get a royal robe that was worn by the king and I would get the crown and I would get a royal horse and I would have a servant lead this person that the king wants to honor all the way through the palace. And the servant would say with the top of their lungs, this is what is done to honor the one who has served the king. The king thought about it and he thought, this is really a great idea. Haman, would you please go get a robe that I have worn and a crown and a royal horse? And would you please go get the guy that stands outside my palace at the front gate, Mordecai, and put the robe on Mordecai and put the crown on his head and put him on the horse. And Haman, it'll mean the most to me if you walk him around the city and you could be the one who honors him in front of all people because everybody knows that you carry with me the authority of the crown. It would really help me honor him because he's done me such a favor. Well, well Haman, of course, had a sour look on his face. It's like when your kids are told they got to clean their room. And he's kicking and screaming and he does the thing that the king wants. He's pulling Mordecai all around the city going, this is what is done to honor the person who serves the king. And he is mortified by the fact that he has to serve Mordecai. He gets him all around the city, brings him back. The Bible tells us that he walked home that evening with literally egg on his face. He gets to his home, humiliated. And the banquet hosted by Esther is about to begin and the king's people come and they whisk him away. He barely has any time to talk to his family and friends and tell them about how atrocious the day went, how nothing happened according to plan. Instead of killing Mordecai, he had to honor Mordecai. And they get to the banquet, more food, more wine. Finally, the king asks, Esther the question. Esther, my darling, what is your petition? What do you need? And Esther finally has the gumption at the right moment, right here, right now, she says this. She says, well, if I found favor with you, your majesty, if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition. Spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. She goes, there's a wicked plot to kill all of the Jews, and you don't know this, O king, but guess what? I am a Jew. The king goes, what? And Haman goes, what? And together, they're, they're just so confused. And the king goes, well, well how can this be? Who has, insti who has instigated this terrible thing against you and your people? And Esther, with all the calm, cool, and collection that she can have, she points and she says, the adversary, the evil, vile, and wicked one himself, Haman. To which the king throws the table. He stands up and he storms out of the palace. This is literally what it says. The king got up in a range. He left, I love this detail, he left his wine. So the only time you see the king leaving wine is in this exact moment. He is so outraged that he leaves his cup. He goes into the palace garden to have a think. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg a Jew for his life. He stayed behind to beg the queen for his life. This gets so bad for Haman. This insisting, this chasing Esther around the room, asking her, would you please change his mind? I didn't mean anything about it. I just didn't know you were a Jew. I, I never would have done this if I, you know, do that. It was your people too. Like, please forgive me. Just whatever, I'll do anything. I'll do anything. I'll do anything. 
In the midst of Haman begging for his life, Esther goes and she sits down on like a chaise lounge. The king, having thought it over for just a couple of minutes, walks back into the room and he happens to walk into the room at the exact moment that that Haman stumbles over his feet, trips and falls onto the couch, lying on top of Esther. The whole situation looks terrible. The king throws his hands in the air and says, what now? Would he even touch my wife when I'm in his presence? And the, the guards that are around him, he says, seize him. The guards look at the king, holding Haman in their hands. One of them says, uh, your majesty, we don't think this is exactly how this should go, but this is an option for you. We noticed today in Haman's front yard, a giant spike was set up for him to impale Mordecai, the guy that you honored earlier today. We wonder if this wouldn't be more use for Haman. And the king thinks about it for just a second. And he says to him, hang him. This is how Haman's Spike became his own undoing. The king gives Esther all of Haman's property and she gives it to Mordecai. Esther pleads with the king to reverse what was previously declared, but a king's decree can't be undone. So the king gives Mordecai and Esther the signet ring and says, whatever you can do to help your people, please do it. You have all my authority. And so they sit down and they write a decree and they say this. All of the people who are of Jewish descent living in the kingdom are permitted to gather arms and assemble as an army to defend themselves against any and all attacks by anyone who would seek their ill. And so on the 13th day of the 12th month, all of the people who are of Jewish descent gathered arms and they formed an army. And the people that came after them, they were able to defend themselves against. And by this, the Jewish people did defend themselves and their people survived. Here's how the um, story ends, because I know this is a long story. Thanks for hanging with me. Um, Xerxes, chapter 10, it's just a couple verses long. It's three verses long. Xerxes is richer than ever, seeing his empire grow in peace. And Mordecai becomes second in command thought of highly by his people, and here's how it ends, these are the last words, because he worked for the good of his people and spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews. Now, ladies and gentlemen, that was the whole entire book of Esther in 20 minutes. You're welcome. Here's a question, because our time is short. The story actually makes the point today. Who's the main actor in this story? Who's the one that does all the work in this story? If you were going to go through this and try and break it down, you might think Haman is just the villain, so not him. The king is a central figure for sure, but he's not of consequence. In fact, the king is more like a, a sitcom dad from the 90s. You know, he's kind of half drunk all the time, indecisive. He's always in his recliner. Esther, of course, is the leading lady, and, and Mordecai is her guide. But the two of them are at an impasse for how they could even be of consequence to their people. Both of them fall on the mercy of another. So in the final analysis of the story, who is the main actor? The answer is surprising. It's the guy who is on mute and whose camera is off. 
It's the guy that you never hear talked about. It's the guy that is never talked to. It's the guy who is never seen. See, Esther, Esther is all about the invisible yet involved God. For, for, for centuries, people have wondered why Esther is even in the Bible because the name of God is not mentioned when the name of the king is mentioned 30 times and the, the word king itself is over 100 times, but God himself is never mentioned. The reason that Esther is in the Bible is because it is the greatest answer to the question, is God working, that the Bible can present for us? My grandpa was an author and pastor. His name's Warren Wearsby. He wrote it this way. He said that, that in Esther, God's not hiding. He's just hidden. That God's not hiding. He's just hidden. Esther, in its own way, reminds us that God's eyes are never off his people. His power is never far from our lives. In fact, in this story, God has his way, but he never violates the freedom or the free will of the people who are acting. In fact, Mordecai gives us the closest hint in the story uh, when he says this to Esther. He, he says this. He says, if you don't do anything about this, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. Mordecai shows us that as an old elder statesman who is a person of God, a man of God. He believes in the promises of God that he will care for his people regardless of their dire situation. That help will arise from another place because God will cause it. And then he punctuates his faith with this curious question towards Esther. He says, who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this, that, th that there's some purpose that you've been given here in the midst of this moment, that you should use your position to help your people. This is a challenge of the question, is God working? Because the answer is clearly yes. God is at work in a million hidden ways in this world. But what Esther invites us into is, a, is to answer the question, how does God work? And I just want to give you three words before we leave from here today. Um, th these three words are, are with, in, and through. First is this, God works with his people. I mentioned earlier that to answer this question, you know, a creator created the world, but deists believe that maybe he stepped away and is no longer involved in this creation. They call this the clockmaker theory, where, where God is a clockmaker. He created a finely tuned device and he turned it on its own power and then he just stepped away. In this version, God is just above his creation and he's apart from his creation. But the record of scripture, and if we're honest today, the story of our own lives is that we have a God who is not just a designer, he's personally involved in our daily lives. God is with us. The Christian doctrine that's essential for all of us to understand and lay hold of in this world and therefore in our own lives is actually this. This is really critical for us. I wanna give you a big fancy word. It's the word imminence. Imminence, you can impress all of your friends, imminence. It's not imminent, meaning something is destined to happen, like what's gonna to happen today to the Broncos. But, but imminence is that God is present and involved with his creation. God is present and with his creation. In transcendence, God stands above his creation. We don't have any problem with that, that God is above us, we're, we're good with that. But, but we struggle with God's imminence, that God is with his creation. But this is what gives us the hope of Emmanuel, 
the same word, I-M-M-A-N-U-E-L, that God is with us. This is the message of Christmas. This is why Jesus is called Emmanuel himself, because he came as God with us. God is an imminent God. When we grasp this dynamic that God is a participant within his own world, it changes everything for you and me. It means that in every situation that you and I face, whether it's life-threatening or confusing or despairing or, or even hope-filled, that all of the options behind these doors that we have no idea how they work out, we must believe that God is at work in all of them. It seems that God is hidden. We know better even when it doesn't feel better. And this is the hope, is that there's no situation that we face that God doesn't already have keen knowledge of and there's no circumstance that's beyond God's care. I know I told you a long story and kind of have you in this like listening phase, but I'm gonna say that one more time because that was like really good news. It means that there's no circumstance in this life that God doesn't already have a keen knowledge of or that is beyond his care. We need to know that. In fact, God is working to bring about the fullness of his plan at all times, that heaven would come to earth and the world would know the glory of God. This is what Paul says in the New Testament, Ephesians chapter one, it says this, that we were chosen, we're predestined according to the plan of him who works everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. That God is moving us into faith so that we could know him and his will might be done on earth. How does that look like? What is that, how does that go? How does God do this? How does God be with us? Well, he's with us this way, working in us and through us. God works in us, of course, we know this. God is working in you to grow your character and your faith. In the true story of Esther, Mordecai grows in faith as he sees God deliver him and his people again and again. What Mordecai knew was true of God, that he delivers and detects, protects and guides his people. He knew that it was true of God when the Israelites escaped Egypt on dry land through the Red Sea. He knew that it was true when God brought bread from the sky and put it before them in the wilderness. He knew that it was true when God gave them land and and, and even though another king had taken rule over them, he knew that God's promises were not in jeopardy no matter the circumstances that he was facing. And Mordecai's faith believed God, and because he believed God and because God delivered, his faith grew. Esther grew in faith as the Lord protected her in the palace and gave her favor with the king when she needed it. You know, Jesus says that God's growing you in faith through the hard trials of life. He says, you know, you who are worried about many things, you look at the birds of the air and the flowers of the wilderness and you realize that God loves them and provides for them, but he loves you even more because you're a child of his. And so if he cares for you these ways, is he not gonna be more involved in your own life? There's supernatural provision that God works in us. But there's something crazy about this story that has really haunted me. And the real burden of Esther isn't, does God have the capacity to intervene in history? But it's the reality that when God intervenes in history these days, he often chooses to intervene through us. You know, God's favorite tool to build with is people. I'm gonna say it this way, God's favorite instrument of change in the world 
is us. I expect God to impose his way in the world, but, but the way he works is by inviting us to connect his resources with our human needs. This is what ministry is. I, as a minister of the gospel, my job is to connect the divine resources that God has given us with your human needs so that your life can be growing in the knowledge of God. In the New Testament, every follower of Jesus is given a ministry. Every follower of Jesus is, is called to meet needs of people, to connect God's power in heaven here on earth. Because Jesus has given us a ministry, we see that God is at work through his people. I want to just ask you this question as you leave today. How is God working through you? How are you letting God work through you? Is God working through you? This is really the question, isn't it? Not, is God working? Is God going to interrupt my life? Is God going to turn this all around and make this better? But, but the invitation that we all have is actually not to just wait for God to make it better, but to actually step up into the game and to work with God to let him work through us. God is calling us not just to spectate the way that we think he's spectating, but to be active the way we think he's active. Let me show you how this works. You have received a promotion or a new job. You didn't know how it was going to go. You didn't know where it was going to be, but you just received it, and it's great. You're pumped. It's a job that maybe you would have looked for. What position have you been elevated to? And, and, and perhaps it's for such a time as this. What resources do you have at your disposal? Like, what do you have that you can use to bless the people in your community with? What injustice are you privy to that, who knows, you might have been put in this position to bring a solution to for such a time as this? You see, God is at work, working through you, and he's inviting all of us to be a part of what he's doing. And I think if you don't have a great answer to how you're letting God work through you, there's, there's just a posture that I want to present to you that you can take to be used by God. Esther teaches us that we ought to cultivate curiosity about God's activity. My greatest lesson from Mordecai's encouragement to Esther are the words, who knows? Who knows? He goes, who knows? Maybe this is why you're in this position. This past week, I saw some friends when I was uh, out of town. I was back in uh, my former town, and um, I saw some friends, and, and they, the day before, they hit a deer with their car. It was devastating for the car and the deer. And my friend looks at me and, and they're down to one car now, you know, like first world problems. But they're down to one car and she looks at me and she goes, well, you know, maybe God, who knows, maybe God knew something about our car that we didn't know yet and he's helping us get a different one. In my cynicism, I said, maybe God knows something about that deer too, I don't know. <laughs> and as I read Mordecai's words to Esther this week, I just remembered that, that conversation that who knows, maybe, 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 what is God up to and far too often, I think you and I go through life assuming that God is up to nothing so we're not curious about what he's up to. But curiosity about God's activity is the one thing that turns our obstacles into opportunities for God to show up. I'll say that again, if I can. The moments in our life when we don't know what God is up to can become an opportunity for us as opposed to an obstacle if we just simply ask the question, God, I don't know what you're up to, but maybe you're up to something in the midst of this. 
It can turn around the most dire situations where, where, where you, you know what, what you have to go through is going to be hard. And yet you know that God might be bringing you through. God might be bringing you through something incredibly good. Would you just work with him? Let him work through you. I talked to a, a man from Heartland today who has to have procedures done to help his body keep, keep living. And he said, maybe I just get to be a light in the hospital when I'm there. I just get to tell jokes and make nurses' lives better. And I thought to myself, that is a great example of someone who is curious about God's activity. But Esther also shows us that we can't just be curious. We got to commit courageously to serve other people. Commit courageously. Esther had this moment where she had to say, if I perish, I perish, but I'm willing to do the hard thing to be a channel of God's grace in the life of my people. We have to be ready to help when the time is right, even if it costs us something. I don't know if you need to take some PTO off your job to help people out or if you've got to have a hard conversation with someone in your family. You may need to risk something comfortable in your life to ensure the needs of someone else. I think that's absolutely true of those of us who have resources. But here's what's true is that God positions people to humbly serve other people. This is what Paul said in Ephesians. He said that we're God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good. This is our purpose. For what purpose have you been created today in this world? It's to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. We need to courageously commit to, to walking into those and carrying them out. And then here's my last thing that I learned from Esther. Is that when it feels to us that God is not aware of what we're facing, when it feels to us that all of the world is falling apart and that we're facing our doom and our demise, when we don't have a plan forward, we do what Esther did. We do what was encouraged of the Brits back in World War II, to keep calm and carry on. There is a sense of calm that Esther takes with her, a sense of dignity and poise, waiting for the right time to bring this up to the king. She goes about her life living honorably day to day to day. She keeps calm and she carries on. Isn't it true that when we feel like God is furthest away from us, our anxiety is the highest? But if God is an imminent God who is with us and working in us and working through us, then great peace can come into the midst of our anxiety knowing that nothing that we have in this life today is outside of the eyes of God. What that tells me, friends, is this. We get to breathe. We get to laugh. We get to enjoy the ride. We get to live without fear. This one, you can't amen, but it's true. You get to vote without assuming your candidate is anointed because God is in control. This one, you should amen. You get to parent without fear that you're messing up your kids because God is in control. God is not just above our lives and apart from our lives. God is in it, with us, in us, through us. You know, the greatest work ever accomplished by God was in becoming the Emmanuel himself. God was present in his spirit with Esther, but he became present in humanity through Jesus. No other king would ever visit his subjects from so far. No other king would ever dare take on their infirmities, but Jesus the king did. 
through his life, he showed us how to notice the activity of the Father, how to bring about justice in this world, how to care for the poor. He showed us how God uses his divine resources to meet human needs. Jesus did this courageously by serving us. He laid down his life on the cross. He was willing to be impaled on the stake for our sake because he knew the greatest work his father was doing through him was in us. And through it all, he entrusted himself to his father knowing that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Which is why three days later when he got up, he said to his disciples, don't be afraid because all authority in the entire cosmos is irrefutably mine. And I want you to go with power into this whole world and do the works of my father. And by the way, I am with you forever. This is the power that allows Abigail to get in the water today and to, to say to all of us that though I face some hard things, my God is with me, walking with me every step of the way. Because is God working? Yes. Does it feel like his camera's off? Sometimes. Does it feel like sometimes he's on mute? Yeah. But we have a God who has made promises to us and he's never failed.